More good news from Jesus today. Um, I'm going to do something that I don't think I've, I've ever done. I'm going to kind of give a little pre-sermon sermon before we get to the sermon. Um, this whole gospel issue, uh, this issue of divorce, I think what is important for us to see, what we need to set our focus on, is that the Pharisees are here emphasizing divorce and the fact that it has always been the male prerogative, right? They're asking Jesus a kind of non-question question about divorce. Is it legal? Is it lawful? Well, of course, it's always been legal in terms of the male prerogative to leave his wife in this tradition. And what Jesus insists on, what Jesus focuses on, where he places the weight and his response to them is on the equality of marriage. By pointing back to this story of Genesis 2, the way that these two became one. So he's challenging us today with this issue of marriage and this idea that what was once just the male prerogative is now a calling into a deeper kind of unity and equality with one another. And this is always Jesus' attitude, right? That it's always about people first. Jesus embodied this kind of tolerance that wasn't compromising. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. We see this in a story like when the disciples pick off the heads of grain to eat them on the Sabbath. And people try to bust the disciples and say, hey, wait, 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 what are they doing? And Jesus is just saying, they're hungry, let them eat. They forgot it was the Sabbath, okay? But remember that the Sabbath was made for the man, not the man for the Sabbath. This is always Jesus' posture, to put people first, to embody this kind of tolerance without compromise. Okay, now to the real stuff. Um, what I really want to spend a few minutes on today is... <laughs> Not much better news. <laughs> um, it's, it's really about this problem of evil, kind of. Um, we're not really going to address it, but we're kind of going to get there. So hang with me. It's interesting to me that over the past couple weeks, if you've been paying attention to the lectionary and kind of the arc of where these things are going, last week we had this text out of Esther. And if you know anything about the story of Esther, um, you know that beginning to end, throughout the whole story, God is never mentioned. God's never brought in to the story of Esther. But still, this is a story that gets told over and over and over again throughout the people of God's history. It's one of the only books in the Bible that doesn't mention God. If anything, we're supposed to be struck by that. We're supposed to see this absence of God in this story. But then, of course, even in God's seemingly absentness, God still seems to be somehow working this whole situation for the good of the people of God. If you, again, know anything about the arc of this story of Esther, you know it is a story about what was meant for evil is now turned into good. And so it actually becomes a story about why the Jewish people celebrate a particular feast day in their context. But again, 
God is never mentioned. God's never present. God is never explicitly acting. And so we go straight from a book of God's apparent absence into the story of Job. And if that doesn't shock you, you're not paying attention. Because now, not only do we have God's goodness being acted out and his apparent absence, in the book of Job, we see what seems to be like a lot of pain and suffering and destruction happening in someone's life at the hands of God's activity. <laughs> it's just shocking, right? Let's take a look here just quickly um, at Job chapter 2. This is what's offered to us in the lectionary today. Job chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came, came among them to present himself before the Lord. What does that mean? I have no idea. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> Thanks, God. There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, who turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. And then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. And we don't really know what that means. Um, some kind of like trading or bartering term that doesn't really make sense to us today. Skin for skin. All the people have, they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well. He is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Thank you, wife. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not also receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So much going on here. George MacDonald um, wrote a much better sermon than the one you're about to hear on Job. And he talks about Job as what he calls the human being. George MacDonald calls Job the human being because in Job, he experiences every kind of pain and torment and suffering. And it's so shocking to me that his wife looks at him and asks him this question, do you still cling to your innocence? Curse God and die. Why would she say curse God and die? Well, she's looking at him thinking, you're going to die anyway. You might as well go down swinging, right? You might as well be cursing God while it's happening to you. But he, he holds on to what the text says, his innocence or his integrity. 
And for the next 36 chapters of Job, until God just simply can't really take it anymore, he maintains his integrity, his innocence. And then finally, this is God's response to Job. We've all heard this and we're familiar. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Then he says to Job, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon the earth? God is asking some hard questions of this person, Job. And what I think something of what we're meant to see here is that there is a way that we do cling to our innocence in ways that are right, in ways that are faithful. We see that here at the beginning of this story of Job. God even commends Job as saying he is a person who persists in his integrity. And then even when he's suffering, even when he is tormented, he still persists in his integrity. But over the course of this story of Job, what we see is that his integrity, his sense of his own innocence actually turns into a kind of hubris. And so God responds by bringing Job back to this point of an innocence that is grounded in humility. I think that's a word for all of us that too often we can be so quick to hold on to our own sense of innocence, our own sense of integrity, until we start to use it as a way to prop ourselves up, a way to see ourselves as right and other people are just wrong. And we need these kinds of moments when God asks these tough questions, who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? To bring us back to that moment of humility. There, um, There is a kind of caveat here that I I want to emphasize, that in Job's complaining, and if anyone ever had a right to complain, it, it is Job, we see this kind of tradition of these prayers of lament, these prayers of protest start to make their way into the tradition. And so there's a long history here of these kinds of prayers, and they can be prayed faithfully. When our lives are falling apart, there are times when it is appropriate and it is right and even an act of faith that we ask hard questions of God, these kinds of prayers of protest. David Blumenthal, this was a a post-Holocaust prayer, and he wrote this book on a theology of protest, and it's this shocking prayer. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but it ends with these words, again, saying these words to God, where were you? post-Holocaust, reflecting back on what just happened to the people of God. Where were you? The fault is yours. You repent. You return to us. Imagine the kind of depth of pain and brokenness, the amount of suffering it would take to ask of God, where were you? No, 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 you repent. You return back to us. These kinds of prayers can be prayed 
faithfully and boldly, but never from a place of hubris. Still, the writing of Job never really addresses or gives us any kind of solution to what we see as the problem of evil, that Job suffers at all, that we suffer at all. There seems to be something wrong about it, right? And so many of us grew up in traditions that emphasize this idea that if God is with you, if you are living in a way that glorifies God, you will actually sidestep all of the pain, all of the suffering. But if you've been a human being for five minutes, you know that's just not how this works. And so there's something of the chaotic nature of the world, that things happen and we don't always understand why they happen, that we just have to trust that God is with us. So Job doesn't really offer us any answers to the problem of evil. What it does offer us is maybe a kind of fuller way of understanding the problem itself. That even when you are a person of integrity, even when you are a person who persists in their innocence, bad things can happen to you. And of course, we hear Job's response to his wife, shall we receive the good and not the bad? Because this is life, receiving the good and the bad. But in the same way, Jesus never really talks about this problem of evil either, at least not in the sense that, uh, that there's an answer, or there's a solution to the problem. Instead, Jesus is the one who he lives, he breathes, he teaches, he is eventually crucified and then dies for the kingdom. If anyone should have been able to sidestep suffering, to avoid it altogether, it is the person of Jesus. But that's not what we see in the life of Christ. The other text for uh, today out of the New Testament is this passage out of Hebrews, starting uh, chapter one, verse one, then we'll jump to chapter two. It says this, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jumping over to chapter two, verse five. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere as if the writer of Hebrews forgot like where they found this, right? This is out of the Psalms. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, listen to this, through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We'll stop there. The answer to the problem of evil that Jesus offers us is not a word. The answer that Jesus offers us is the word. It is his own life lived before God and before others. Once the word became flesh, these words out of John, Suddenly, solutions and answers to this problem of evil and suffering had to become more than just words. It actually had to be, in the words of Hebrews, a life that reflected the image of God. N.T. Wright says this, it's not that Jesus offers an abstract or intellectual answer to Job's problem. He doesn't. Jesus, we might say, had to become Job. Remember McDonald's words that Job is the human being, suffering unjustly at the hands of the powers in order that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. In this sense, what we see in the life of Christ is that he becomes Job. Jesus becomes every human as the reflection of God's glory and also as God's exact imprint. And so is God, Christ takes on our humanity so that whatever is possible for him becomes possible for us. Athanasius would say that God in Christ comes to share our nature, comes to share in our existence. This is not because God envies our existence, but it's so that all of the Job's, all of humanity may join in God's endless existence. In Athanasius' words, he says that Jesus in taking on our flesh actually saves us from falling into non-existence. Saves us from falling back into nothingness. And this is what evil is, is nothing. It's a stripping away of everything that is good and right. It's a stripping away of everything that God intended for you and for your flourishing. And Athanasius says that this is what Jesus comes to save us from, from falling into nothingness, into non-existence, and invites us into that life that Jesus lives, which is the life of God's glory and at the exact representation and impression of God. That's the life that we're meant to share in. So then Christ, in all of his humanity and in all of his divinity, what happens to him? What does he do? He takes on our suffering. He is crucified. He dies and he is buried, as the creed says. And then there's this next line in the creed. 
It says not only was Jesus crucified, died, and was buried. What happens next? He descended to the dead. It's a line that we almost want to just skip over entirely because we would rather rush to the resurrection of Jesus and not have to think about what does it mean that Christ descended to the dead? What does it mean for Christ to descend, to go down? Calvin, stick with me. My friend Andrew showed me this this week, that Calvin, we're going to get there. Calvin insists that without this line in the creed, without acknowledging that Christ descends to the dead, we cannot fully understand the gospel. That something is lacking in our understanding. Why is this so important? It's not just because Christ dies a physical death. It's important that we acknowledge that. But Calvin would say that we need to say more about that. You can put that quote back up. Here's Calvin. He says, but after explaining what Christ endured in the sight of men, the creed appropriately adds the invisible and the incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God to teach us that not only was Christ's body given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price, that he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. What does that mean? Calvin defines that kind of torture of ruined and broken man by saying, certainly no abyss can be imagined more dreadful than to feel that you are abandoned and forsaken by God. Than to feel that you are abandoned and forsaken by God. I think about those moments in the story of Esther where the gallows are being constructed and the plan is that every person from their household of the people of God are going to be hung to feel the absence of God, the abandonment of God, Calvin says, there is no greater torment for us. And so he goes on to suggest that because Christ descends to the dead, what he does is secures the fullness of Emmanuel, of the God with us-ness of Christ's saving work in our lives. So that whatever happens to Job, whatever happens to you and whatever happens to me, whatever happens to all of lost and ruined humanity happens to Jesus. And not just the things that happen to the good Christian folk. Whatever happens in the world that looks like suffering and pain and torment and absence in this abyss, Jesus descends to those places, to be with those people. So now, even in the depths of hell, as the psalmist says, the creed affirms that we will find none other than the reflection of God's glory and the exact impression, the exact representation 
of God's very being, sustaining all things, God of very God, light of very light. Frederick Buchner says it this way, Christ of all people in hell of all places. And what is more is that we don't just find Christ there merely as a companion in our sorrow. He certainly is that. But Christ is the one that by his descent harrows hell, empties hell. We have a feast day throughout the church calendar of the harrowing of hell. And it's in this moment that Christ is the one that by his descent liberates the captives and leads them up. Calvin is quoting Bishop Hilary of Poitiers, fourth century bishop, and he says this, in Christ descending, the Son of God is in hell, but man is brought back to heaven. I'm just going to leave that there. Amen.